You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We'll read together verses 31 through 38 of John chapter 8. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your Father. Let's pray together before we begin. Our God, we humble ourselves before you, recognizing that we are unable to understand spiritual things apart from your grace. You're calling us to Yourself, and You're giving us a new nature, new heart, new eyes, new affections, and the indwelling and illuminating ministry of Your Spirit. We are dependent upon You not only for the ability to understand Your Word, but we know the grace to obey it. We pray that You would give us that grace, that as a result of our time in Your Word today, that You would uh, grant the special and precious grace of assurance to those who belong to You. And may those who do not belong to You be shaken from their false sense of security that you might be glorified through our obedience and through people coming to know you truly as Savior and as Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the devil is a deceiver, and his craft is one of deception. He loves to deceive people. He's been doing it for 6,000 years, and he is very, very good at it. And the devil provides a counterfeit for almost everything that God does. All of God's works have a an opposite counterfeit that is intended to deceive God's people into getting away from what God has provided or what God is doing. Scripture warns us about false gods, false Christs, false salvation, false religions, false doctrine, false teaching, false prophecies, false philosophy, and false wisdom and false writings. And all of those things are given to us by false teachers, false prophets, and false apostles. Scripture warns us of false lying signs and wonders, false brethren, the false circumcision, false knowledge, and false words. It's quite a list, isn't it? It should not surprise us that with all of that deception and with all of that falsehood and false religion that the devil would also provide a false faith. And it is a very gracious thing that God has done in warning us about the dangers of having a false faith. And God has not only warned us about false faith, He has given us pictures of false faith. And we've seen this as we've gone through the Gospel of John. John contrasts true, genuine belief with false belief, imitation belief, counterfeit belief. And he gives us an example of a true disciple and an example of a false disciple, and an example of a true disciple, and then examples of false disciples. And we even have false disciples among the true disciples. What was his name? Judas. Judas was one of the twelve. Everybody thought from outward appearances that he was a true disciple, and yet early in Jesus' ministry he identified Judas as a devil. He said to the twelve, one of you is a devil. Judas was a false disciple. He was a fake believer, somebody who put on the appearances of faith when indeed he did not have any true faith. And we saw in John's Gospel last week a couple examples of this false faith. We saw 
false believers in chapter 2, false believers in chapter 6, and then we looked at fake believers in chapter 8. These are people who, John says in verse 29 and 30, or 30 and 31 of chapter 8, that they had come to believe in Jesus, and yet we saw that the entire context indicates that these were not genuine believers. These people who had believed in Jesus had embraced outwardly or formally, superficially, in some sense, some aspect of Jesus and his teaching, but they remained unconverted. They were not willing to yield to him the obedience that he demanded. They were still children of the devil. They still had no place for God's word in them. They did not belong to God. They were not of God. They were of their own father, the devil. We saw that. That's what these quote-unquote fake, these are fake believers in John chapter 8. So now we ask the question, and this is a, a searching one. Do you think that there are fake believers in the church? And I mean, generally speaking, do you think there are fake believers in the church today? I'm not asking about within these four walls, though there might be some here. But do you think that there are fake believers in American Western Evangelical Church today? You know what? To ask the question is to answer the question, right? If you are even minimally observant, you would have to say yes to that. It doesn't even take discernment to answer yes to that question. American evangelicalism, it's my opinion, and you don't have to share this opinion because this is my opinion. I think this is fact. That American evangelicalism, the face of modern American Christianity, is by and large composed of people who are the type of believers described in John chapter 8. They are not true believers. They are not genuine believers. They are fake believers. These fake believers are in seminaries. These fake believers attend Bible colleges. These fake believers pastor churches. These fake believers fill up buildings full of fake believers, and they call themselves churches. That is the face of modern American evangelicalism. If you look at the polls, for instance, you will see that 30%, roughly, of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. 30%. 30%. But then if you look at those same 30%, you start asking yourself, ask the question, do they believe in God? Do they believe that the devil is real? Do they believe the Scripture is inspired? Do they believe the Scripture is infallible? Do they believe in the deity of Christ? Do they believe that salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone? You know what you find out? That 30% gets whittled down really quickly to about 5% or less of modern American evangelicalism. The evangelical church in America is in desperate straits because of the presence of these fake believers. Now you might ask the question, how did it come to this? Why is that the case? How did this happen? And really, to flesh out the reasons behind why this has happened, I think it would take a series of messages, which I'm not going to do, and probably several books and newsletter articles and everything else to really answer that question. But let me give you a bullet, a bulletproof, not bulletproof, a bulleted list a bulleted list of things that I think contribute to this state of modern evangelicalism. We've covered some of these in the past. Number one, the church has for a long time, in fact decades, been fixated almost compulsively on methods, results, numbers, and decisions. That has contributed to it. The church is fixated on numbers, methods, results, and decisions. I can't even track the fads can't even track them anymore. They, they come and they go. If, if you just Google church growth, you will come up with more fads than you can possibly count. It is almost endless. And this is, it's one conference after another, one gimmick after another, one fad after another, anything to get people in. It's, it's a pragmatic approach to ministry, and the church has been fascinated with it for decades. Whatever we need to do to get people in, warm them up to the claims of Christ, and put them in leadership, and that's what we will do. It's all pragmatism. A second thing that has contributed to it is... American methods of evangelism are largely Arminian, and they focus on decisions and numbers, largely Arminian. It's a very man-shaped evangelicalism that we are surrounded by. 
The gospel has been replaced with ask Jesus into your heart or start a relationship with God. And the gospel of repentance and sin and the wrath of God has gone by the wayside. It's not in vogue anymore. And that has contributed to it. A very man-centered religion. People come to Christ to see what Jesus would offer to them. We want a Savior who's like a cosmic bellhop, who fills all of our needs, meets all of our demands, makes us happier, gives us a better golf swing and a promotion and a raise. And if Jesus doesn't cash out and fill out our expectations, then we very quickly, people, very quickly abandon him. That's the face of modern American evangelicalism. A third thing that has contributed to it is the focus on decisions in evangelicalism. There's almost a... a a rabid avoidance of anything that is hard truth. Any hard truth. Whether it is teaching people about difficult doctrines like election and or atonement or the depravity of man, those subjects are most entirely avoided. And instead, the gospel is replaced with a therapeutic, deistic, self-help bunch of tripe that is fed out from pulpit after pulpit, week after week, to people who cannot stand difficult teaching. And the minute you give people difficult teaching, they want to run and hide. They don't have any stomach for it. They're not into Christianity for that. They just want to keep it shallow, keep it simple, and keep me happy. That is what most people demand, and that is, unfortunately, what most churches provide. So there is an avoidance of hard truth in American churches. And then Christians sit around and wonder, How is it that having failed to talk about sin and righteousness and judgment to come, having avoided words like repentance and faith, having expected only the most minimalistic of commitments from people, and having taught them no doctrine for decades, that these people are leaving the faith? How can that be possible? There must be something wrong with our lights and our fog machine. Or maybe we ought to just lower the standards just a little bit more to keep people here and keep them involved. Right? That's American, modern American evangelicalism. In fact, we have come up in Christianity today with a whole category into which we put these people. It's a category that didn't exist until just a few decades ago. The, de- the, the, the category of carnal Christianity. Carnal Christians. So now, in our thinking, in modern day evangelicalism, you have real believers, you have unbelievers, and then you have carnal believers. Carnal meaning fleshly. There's no such thing as a carnal believer. Those who are in the flesh and of the flesh are not believers. They are unbelievers. There are only two types of people, believers and unbelievers. Those who walk in the flesh, who have no desire for holiness, no love for the truth, refuse to obey Jesus, have no affections whatsoever about God, are not interested whatsoever in obeying the truth day in and day out, week after week, and being sanctified by the truth. Those people who have no interest in any of those things are not carnal believers, and they're not believers, they are unbelievers. Whatever their outward zeal for a time might be, they are still rank unbelievers. And then we have to notice in John 8 how different Jesus' approach to these make-believers is than our approach. It's almost striking how Jesus handled these fake believers. We saw it in John 6. We see it again in John chapter 8. Jesus preached the hard truths to them to reveal their heart of unbelief. He revealed, he, he preached hard truth. You know what we do today? We avoid hard truth. We don't want people to be offended. We don't want people to leave. We've got to keep the numbers up. Because the pastor has to answer to the board of directors for the church, and if the numbers are down, he's got to do something to get those numbers back up. We want success. We want numbers. We want, we want, we want a church environment that is just like American culture. Bright, flashy, shiny, busy, and about as deep as a mud puddle. And that's what everybody seems to be pursuing. And so we have American evangelicalism where people think that you can be a carnal believer. There's no such thing as a carnal believer. And Jesus taught the hard truths. We tend to avoid hard truths. 
Jesus let these people walk away. You know what we do in churches today? We form exit committees to interview people who are walking away and ask them, what can we do to get you to stay? What, what can we change about the church, about the preaching, about our doctrine, about our ministry, about everything that we do to get you to remain here and stay here? Jesus let them walk away. Jesus didn't go pandering after the cloud. No, no, hold on, I'm sorry. I'll change what I'm teaching. I'll change what I'm doing. Just come follow me, please, please, please come follow me. Jesus didn't have that approach. Jesus let people walk away. We chase after them. The other thing that Jesus did is he actually tried to reveal their heart of unbelief. And you know what we do? We try and avoid allowing that heart of unbelief to be revealed. We want people to make feel comfortable about being here. And we're not interested in exposing the true nature of their heart. We do everything the exact opposite of what Jesus did. We should actually take a clue from how Jesus handled these carnal or unbelieving people in John chapter 8. Let's take a look at it. Verses 30 and 31 we saw last week. He spoke these things. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Verse 30, verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. Now the rest of this discourse is intended to reveal the fact that this belief was not true belief. That this belief was shallow, insufficient belief. It did not save them. It did not actually change them whatsoever. So verse 31, Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now what Jesus is doing in verses 32 and 33 right there, is he is drawing a line in the sand. He is saying to those Jews who had believed in him, here's the test of your belief. And he is laying down for them the demands of discipleship. What is it that true belief actually looks like? When you look at a believer, somebody who has been transformed by the gospel... When you look at somebody who belongs to Jesus, what do you see? Do you see somebody who is in the faith and out of the faith and in the faith and out of the faith or falling away from the faith for decades at a time? Or do you see somebody who continues in his word? Jesus is saying to them, you have believed upon me, but here's the test of belief. Here's the mark of a disciple. This is what is going to demonstrate or show whether your belief in me is actually saving belief or whether it is a false belief. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Listen, that was a statement that they bristled at right away. Jesus wasn't even one statement. Look at the response that they give him. We're not going to get into this this week. They say to him in a rather indignant tone, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? You know his statement in verse 32 and 33? No true believer would bristle at that. No true believer would reject that. Any true believer would say, well, of course, the evidence of my salvation is the fact that I continue to love him. No, no true believer would reject what he says, but this group immediately rejects it. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at that phrase, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. What does Jesus mean by that? A couple of things before we get into it. Introductory comments, as it were, as if all the rest of this hasn't been introduction. It's actually been transition. Think of it in this term. It's been transition from last week's message to this week's message. Now the introduction to the text. Here we go. Two things you should note. Jesus is not describing the path to discipleship. He is describing the path of discipleship. That might seem like a very inconsequential and small distinction, but it is it is a monumental distinction. Jesus is not describing the way in which we become disciples by continuing in his word. Jesus is describing what it is that a true disciple does. In other words, he's not saying, if you continue in my word, then after a period of time you will become my disciples. You understand the difference? He is saying, if you are truly my disciple, then here is what will be true of you. You will continue in my word. And guess what? How long did they continue in his word? Not even the next sentence. 
The very next sentence shows that his word had no place at all in their hearts. That phrase, if you continue in my words, then you are truly my disciples indeed. We're going to take that backwards. So we're going to look at his word and then we're going to look at what it means to continue. What did Jesus mean when he said, if you continue in my word, my word? What is he referring to? Is he referring to something in this context immediately? Or is he referring to something broader, more general, bigger? I think it's something bigger and more and, and broader and more general. Jesus is not describing some specific thing that he has said in the context of this message. Jesus, when he refers to, and he does this throughout John, he refers to my word or his word as something beyond just its context, but something larger. That is the totality of his teaching. It is all of his word is all of his doctrine. It is everything that he said, everything that he was, everything that he taught, everything that he modeled. That is his word. He uses it that way back in John chapter 5, verse 24, when he says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. You hear he's referring there not to just some phrase that he said, not something limited and small, but the totality of his revelation. He is saying, everything that you have heard from me, if you continue in these things, then you are truly my disciples. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. And that is the totality, again, of his teaching. If Jesus is the I Am, which he claimed to be in verses 24 and 28, remember, if he is the I Am, that is, the God who talked with Moses through the burning bush, if he is the Jehovah Yahweh of Isaiah, who called, called himself the I Am, if that is Jesus' identity and he is God, then what constitutes his word? All of it. The Old Testament is His Word. The red letters are His Word. The words surrounding the red letters are His words. The Word of the Apostles, Paul and John, all the way to Revelation, that is all His Word. It is all His truth. That is what He is referring to. If you continue to walk in My truth, then you are truly My disciples indeed. A true disciple does not look at the words of Jesus and say, okay, this I like, but this I don't. Or this I will obey, but this I won't. This I'll do now, this I will wait till later. A true disciple doesn't do that. A true disciple looks at what Jesus said and says in his heart of hearts. I may not appreciate it. It may be difficult, but I will do it because I love him and because I am committed to him and because he died for me and he has changed my heart. And by the Holy Spirit, I have grace to do this. I will do that and I will obey that. It will not be easy, but I will obey that. That is the heart of a true disciple. A false disciple, a false believer, looks at the words of Jesus and says, I'm going to pick and choose what it is that I want to believe and what it is that I want to obey. A genuine disciple doesn't approach Scripture like that. What is his word? It is the totality of his revelation, all of his truth. If you continue in his truth, in all that he taught, all that he said, all that he revealed, all that he modeled, if you continue in him, then you are truly his disciple. Why is it continuing in the word? Why is it the word? Think of it this way. What is it that caused your salvation? What was the effective power behind your salvation? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? So what is it that brought initially salvation to you? The created faith within. What was the power or the instrument that the Spirit of God used to bring conviction to your heart and salvation to your soul? It was His word. James 1.18 says that in, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. 1 Peter 1.23 says, We have been born again, not a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. What is it that has brought me salvation? What is it that has restored my soul? It is the precepts and the Word of the Lord. So what begins my Christian life? I begin my Christian life in His truth, in His Word. That's what initiates it. 
Sometime, somewhere, somebody presented a truth to you in Scripture that converted your heart and changed your heart and made you a disciple. And God used His Word to do that. We have been brought forth by the Word of His truth. So to continue in His Word is to do nothing more than to continue in the very state in which we have begun. Right? If I begin in His Word, and if I have truly begun in His Word, and if I have been truly been given faith by His Word and by the Holy Spirit, and I've been born again by His Word, then a true disciple will continue in the very thing that he has started in. That is namely His Word. Now those who depart from the faith and walk away from the faith, do you know what their departure proves? That they never began in Scripture to begin with. They never knew His Word. They never started in His Word. They were never born again by the Word of God. That's what leaving the faith demonstrates and is evidence of. So that is what His Word is. Now what does it mean to continue in His Word? What does continuance look like? If it is true that to continue in His Word is to give evidence of my discipleship, that I have truly been born again, then the opposite of that statement is also true. To depart from His Word is to give evidence of what? That I've never truly been born again. The one who remains in His truth, who perseveres in His truth to the very end, gives evidence by that perseverance that he is truly, genuinely a saved disciple. But the one who turns away from that truth gives evidence that he is not a true disciple, that he never was a true disciple, and that he never had salvation to begin with, that he had fake faith. Now, can you think of a group of people in John's Gospel who turned away from his word? you remember? John chapter 6, right? That was, in fact, the whole lesson of John chapter 6. It is difficult to think in all of John's Gospel of one single sentence that describes or sums up the lesson of chapter 6 greater than this lesson in verse 31 and 32 of of John chapter 8. That is, in essence, what John 6 is all about. The one who continues in his word is his disciples indeed. All the crowds came to him, but when he taught them, what did his word do to them? They didn't find any place in them. They turned and they walked away. They didn't have any room for Jesus' word. They didn't continue in his word. His teaching offended them, and they didn't want any part of it. In John chapter 8, we see that his word is doing the same thing in John 8 that it did to the fake believers in John 6. Look at verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The word of God, the word of Christ had no place in these disciples. They didn't have room in their heart, in their being, in their, in their lives for his word. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. How can you continue in a word that you have no place for and you did not hear to begin with? These people in John 8 are not going to continue in his word because Jesus said, you can't hear my word, you can't understand it, you hear it with the ear, you can't hear it with the heart, you can't even understand my word, and because my word has no place in you. And so they would eventually leave and depart and walk right away from the word. And he's describing that very action right here. By the time you get to the end of chapter 8, what are they trying to do? They're trying to kill him. They're trying to kill him. I mean, that's quite a transition, right? From believing and being told, if you continue to walk in my word, then you're truly my disciples. And within a few moments, they're going to be picking up stones to kill him. And Jesus is doing nothing more than revealing to them the unbelief in which their heart still was. Beginning the Christian life is an easy thing. In fact, I can think of a few things that are easier than starting on the path of Christianity. And there are a whole bunch of reasons why it is very easy to start into religious profession. It is continuing in a religious profession, which is very, very difficult. But starting, starting is easy. And there are all kinds of things that contribute to it being easy to start into a Christian profession. One of them is, sometimes we are presented with a gospel that is 
that is that hides all of the essential and hard truths mentioned earlier, right? Sin, righteousness, judgment to come, the wrath of God, heaven and hell, repentance and faith, and the demands of Christianity. Look, friends, it is very difficult to get somebody to ask Jesus into their heart if you front end load the gospel with all the hard truths about picking up your cross and sacrificing daily and walking with him and loving your wife and submitting to your husband and walking in obedience and continuing. You put all that stuff up front, people won't. People won't come up to the altar. You can't have a successful altar call if you front end load the gospel with all the hard truths. You can't get that to happen. So we have an easy believism with a very easy gospel. Starting in a Christian profession is easy. Sometimes it's the result of just being part of the feeling of the moment. All the people in the pew that I'm sitting in, they're doing the same thing. I mean, my whole Sunday school class went forward at the altar call, and I had to go with them. Our, my whole youth group is up there. i got to get involved in that and get up there and get into the moment. Everybody around me is doing this. My parents are into it. My siblings are into it. My grandma and grandpa, they're into it. All my friends are into it. You get caught up in the emotion of the movement. You say, why not? I'll go, I'll go give the Jesus thing a whirl, right? Sometimes it's just the novelty of it. We like to do things that are novel and new. We have people who say to themselves, I've tried sex, drugs, rock and roll, faith, family, friends, popularity, money, I've done everything else in the world. Why don't I give Jesus a try, see what he can add to my basket of happiness. Maybe he can sort of push me over on the self-fulfillment scale. Sometimes it's the novel thing to do. Other times it's just an emotional appeal that you and I give into. You can take whole seminars and classes on how to adjust the music and the lights and the timing of the music and the way in which you preach and the powerful illustration that you use in just such a way to get people to make that decision for Christ. Getting people to make an emotional, uh, getting people to do something out of emotion is one of the easiest things in the world to do, to gin up an emotional appeal. Sometimes that's what makes starting Christianity easy. Starting a religious profession is easy. Continuing in it is very difficult because guess what happens? Trials, tribulations, and temptations come and they test that faith. Suffering, sorrows, and sickness comes, and it tests the profession of faith. Persecution comes, and guess what happens to fake believers? They fall away just as fast and easy as they came to the altar to begin with. J.C. Ryle, in his book on the Gospel of John, says this, To make a beginning in religious life is comparatively easy. Not a few mixed emotives assist us. The love of novelty, the praise of well-meaning, but indiscreet professors, the secret self-satisfaction of feeling how good I am, the universal excitement attending a new position, all these things combine to aid the young beginner. Aided by them, he begins to run the race that leads to heaven, lays aside many bad habits, takes up many good ones and many comfortable frames and feelings, and gets on swimmingly for a time. But when the newness of his position is past and gone, when the freshness of his feelings is rubbed off and lost, when the world and the devil begin to pull hard at him, when the weakness of his own heart begins to appear, then it is that he finds out the real difficulties of vital Christianity. Then it is that he discovers the deep wisdom of our Lord's saying now before us. It is not beginning but continuing a religious profession that is the test of true grace. Did you hear that? It is not beginning but continuing in a religious profession that is the true test of grace. Time and wear test metals and prove whether they are solid or plated. Time and wear also in like manner are the surest tests of a man's religion. End quote. So do you continue or have you departed from the faith? What does it look like, first of all, to continue in the faith, to continue in his word? Here's what it looks like. Here's how scripture describes it. The person who continues in his faith works out his own salvation with fear and trembling. 
He fights daily the battle against sin, all the lust of his flesh, and puts those things to death daily. He mortifies sin. He continues to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, being sanctified by God's truth. He loves truth. He loves the brethren. He serves. He gives. He sacrifices. He lays down his life. He takes up his cross. He bears it all. He worships Christ. He gives to Christ his affections. He crucifies and knocks down all the idols of his life. That is what continuing in the faith is. It is to it is to love truth, to defend the truth, to remain hard and fast to the gospel, to love the gospel, not to compromise on the gospel, and to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what it looks like. That's just a glimpse of what it looks like to continue in the truth. What does it look like to depart from the faith? To depart from the faith is to compromise on the gospel. It is to give up fighting or contending for the faith and for the truth. To not care about doctrine, that is to depart from his word. To give, to give no uh, desire whatsoever or no effort whatsoever to obedience and sanctification and pursuing holiness, which Scripture says without which we cannot see God. To depart from the faith is to abandon all of those things. To depart from the faith is to keep a chasm, a big one, between what I hear on Sunday morning and how I live my life on Monday morning. Between what I know to be true and what I do actually in truth in my family, with my wife, with my husband, with my kids, in my church, relating to one another, in my business, with my ethics and my morality, to keep a big chasm there and to keep all that I know to be true out there and then to live my life in here. To depart from the truth is to sit Sunday after Sunday, week after week, and to hear the truth, to be exposed to the truth, and to give no love for the truth and no obedience to the truth, and to have it not impact your life whatsoever. It is to depart from the truth eventually is to apostatize and walk away from it and to say to yourself and to others, I tried the Christian thing. It didn't work for me. I'm done. Walking away. I've been there. I've done that. I bought the t-shirt. I attended church. I was an elder. I was a deacon. I was a pastor for a time. I taught at a Bible school. I taught Sunday school. I did all of these things. And today, I don't want any of it. That is what it means to depart from the faith, to depart from the truth. Jesus said that obedience is one of the marks of a genuine believer. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14:21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14:23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15:14. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. First John 2, verse 4, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. First John 3, verse 24, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. First John 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. One of the differences between an unbeliever and a true believer is how they view the commandments of God. A true believer looks at what God asks and says, I will gladly do that. Out of love for him, because I love him, I will gladly do that. It doesn't mean it's easy. It means that I'm willing to do it, and I will love it, and I will delight in it, and I will recognize that the burden of sin is greater than the burden of any commandment God has ever asked me to do. An unbeliever looks at the commandments of God, love your neighbor, serve, sacrifice, give, love, etc., and says, I can't do that. I hate that. I don't want to love my wife. I don't want to discipline my children. I don't want to honor God. I don't want to give. I don't want to serve. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to go to worship. I don't want to read his word. I don't want to pray. I don't want to worship. That's how an unbeliever responds to the commandments of God. A genuine believer says, his commandments are not burdensome. It's the joy of my heart. Because I love him, I do what he has asked me to do. That's the difference between a true believer and a false believer. All of us know the tragedy 
of seeing people depart from the faith, don't we? It's been going on for 2,000 years. There were false disciples, even among the, an eight false disciple, even among the 12. That's Judas. There were false disciples, fake believers, among those who followed the Lord Jesus. We should not expect that it would have changed, and it hasn't. There have always been people, always tares among the wheat, always goats among the sheep, people who make a profession of faith, who claim to be saved, who have gone forward at an early age, who have asked Jesus into their heart, but Jesus never stuck around. There have always been fake believers. It's not a joy to read of people departing from the faith. It should grieve our hearts, and it truly does. And it's not easy to say this, but friends, the one who departs was never saved. Those who are saved will never depart. Get that into your head. The one who departs was never saved. The one who was saved will never depart. And that's not an easy thing to say, because if you're like me, you have friends, people we went to school with, maybe siblings, parents, a spouse, children, who have at one time made a profession of faith in Christ, but today they give no evidence of that salvation whatsoever. They were not saved to begin with. Those who This is hard. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm not trying to make it easy. They were not saved to begin with. You say, but they prayed the prayer when they were six. I know they prayed the prayer. Whatever the prayer is, I, I know. There's some magical prayer out there that when you pray it, it's saved. It's locked up your security. It's your fire insurance. They prayed it when they were six. Or, or they went forward at the altar call. And I know they got saved. They taught Sunday school for years. An elder in our church for years. They were never saved. That's it. This is the mark of a true disciple. He continues in the word and the doctrine and the teaching and love for Christ from the moment of his salvation all the way to the very end. And those who depart were never saved to begin with. It is better to just be brutally honest about that, is it not? I know some folks who have children, and there's nobody in this congregation, so don't be looking around wondering whose this is. I know some folks who have children who made a profession of faith early on. Some of them went on and studied in Bible college, etc. And then now they've just totally abandoned the faith, walked away. They want nothing to do with God or anything to do with spiritual matters whatsoever. And it is a grief to these parents' hearts, as well as it should be. It's a grief to my heart to see this happen because it should vex us that this even happens within Christianity. It's, it's, it's a, dis- a blight and a disgrace to the name of Christ. Very painful. But to this day... Those people are deceive themselves into thinking they're truly saved because they prayed the prayer. They're truly saved because they had a place for Jesus in their heart at one time or another. It is far better to just be honest and say they were never saved to begin with, so now I need to evangelize my children. Rather than make them or allow them to think that they're actually saved when they're not, that's not loving, that's not kind, that's not gracious, that's not compassionate. You want to be compassionate to your wayward child or your wayward parent, your wayward spouse? Evangelize them. Don't make excuses for them. Allow them to see that their heart of unbelief will be punished by God and that they're not truly saved to begin with. Those who depart from the faith were not saved. They were false converts. And it's just a matter of time before they go back to wallowing in the mire, before they go back like a dog to its vomit and return back to the darkness that they love. It's just a matter of time. How do you know if somebody's truly saved? They continue in his word. That's the evidence of it. That's the evidence of it. Let me give you three quick applications from this this morning. Actually, I had two, and I'm going to include a third one. The first, examine yourself again. I challenged you with this last week. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's a biblical thing to do. It's a healthy thing to do. To look at ourselves and say, do I, do I have evidence in my life that I'm actually saved? Do I love obedience? Do I love holiness? Do I pursue righteousness? Do I love truth? Am I obedient to the truth? Do I respond to hard teaching with obedience and love and affection? 
Or do some things just turn me off? I have no desire for these things. Do I truly love light or do I love darkness? It's good to examine yourself, to say, why did I come to Jesus in, in the beginning? Was it for some for some thing that he is, does not offer me? A better marriage or a better life or a better job? Or did I come to Jesus for the one thing that he has promised me? Forgiveness of sins. And did I repent when I came to Jesus? Examine yourself. Is it possible that your lack of desire for obedience is due to the fact that you have never actually been turned from darkness to light? And you still love darkness. A second application. We need to remember these truths when we assess people's spiritual commitments. Your four-year-old comes to you and says, I've asked Jesus into my heart. What do you say to them? You say, no, according to Pastor Jim, you're still a darkness-loving little heathen. No, you don't say that. No, in love, you say, you know what? If you have believed upon Jesus, you need to continue in that. You keep believing on Jesus. That is the right thing to do. And let's just review again why it is that you are believing upon Jesus. And you encourage them in that. Right? You encourage them in that. And then when the missionary stands up here and he says, hey, last year we had 200 people come to Christ out of Coca-Cola Lake Bible Camp. We like to hear stuff like that, don't we? We like to hear the missionaries respond and tell us the effects or the fruit of our prayers and our sacrifices and our giving and our efforts and our work and all of that. We like to hear numbers. We're numbers people. And we like to hear about the fruit that is out there. Well, look, a hundred people come forward. What does that mean? Did a hundred people get saved? How many people got saved? Nobody can know that, can they? Nobody can know that. You know when you will know how many people got saved? A decade from now, how many of those people are still bearing fruit in their lives? After those people who come forward, after they go through sickness and they lose a child, they have a stillborn child, and they have a miscarriage, and they deal with cancer, and they deal with uh, a tragedy, or they lose a child to some tragic accident or something like that, and they're still clinging to Christ, then you can say that's genuine salvation. That is real faith. True faith goes through the fire and comes out purified and refined, and we look at that true faith and we say, glory be to God for giving me that faith and for sustaining me in that faith. Now I know that because I have trusted him through all of this, that is the evidence of my genuine salvation. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. Go home and read 1 Peter chapter 1. We go through the trials of life and we come out on the other side and we look and we see we have our faith still intact. And that faith is more precious to us than gold. Why? Because we look at the faith and we say, I went through the trial and I didn't give up. This is the real deal. I passed the test because I've gone through affliction and I have remained faithful to Christ and I have Him on the other side of it and He sustained me through all of that. We need to remember these things when we assess claims to faith that we cannot know just because somebody prayed a prayer whether they are saved or not. It is time, it is wear and tear that will be the test of that profession of faith. And the third application would be this. This does not mean that you and I should have or can have no assurance of our salvation. Right? Now, if you're, you are saved here this morning, and you belong to Him, and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have no reason to not have assurance. I am not trying to rob genuine believers of the precious gift and blessing of assurance. Assurance is something that every genuine believer should have. Not because you prayed a prayer, not because you drove a stake in the ground with a date written on it, or not because you did something in your childhood, or because you were baptized, but an assurance that is based upon, I've examined myself, I know whom I have trusted, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. When you have that type of a faith and you look at it and you say, I know I'm a child of God because I've been born again, given new affections, and I love things I hated once, and I hate now the things that I once loved. When you have that type of faith, you should have, and you have every right to have, assurance. That type of a believer, those who belong to Christ, should never doubt their salvation. Never. 
You know why? Because Christ has promised all that the Father has given to me. Remember chapter 6? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. I will raise him up on the last day and I will lose none of them. Not a single one of those who have truly come to faith in Christ will be lost on the last day. Not one. He will raise them all up. That is his promise and his guarantee. And if you have come to faith in Christ, you can rest in that. I have absolute confidence that because of my faith, I'm resting in Christ. He will raise me up. I know it to be true. No lack of assurance. But on the other hand, if you're a fake believer, if you're a fake believer, you have every reason to question your salvation. If you do not obey, you do not love obedience, you do not love truth, you do not respond well to hard teaching or any teaching, you resist, you're stiff-necked, you're still proud, unhumbled, unpenitent. If that describes you, you have every reason to doubt your salvation, and you should doubt your salvation because you have no grounds for assurance whatsoever. If you love sin, you have no grounds of assurance. None. So I'm not trying to rob genuine believers of the precious fruit of assurance. You ought to have that. I want to encourage you in that. That's what chapter 6 was all about. But at the same time, I believe examples like this are given to shake, to shake the faith believer out of his false sense of security. And it ought to do that to you and to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are... So grateful that you give to us examples of the type of faith that does not save so that we might know what true faith looks like and that we might respond with that true faith. We pray, God, that as a result of looking at these passages of Scripture and considering these things, that our hearts might be molded and shaped to your will and to your desire for us. We pray that you would grant to those who belong to Christ the precious grace and the fruit of genuine assurance. May they never doubt their salvation. May they never doubt your ability to complete that which you have begun in them. And may we never doubt your ability and your promise that you will raise us up on the last day, that we will be saved, that you have given to us a faith which is not of human making or human origin. It does not falter or fail, but it will persevere to the very end. May that assurance grip the hearts of all those who are yours, and may we rest in it, because that assurance is based upon the confidence and the promise of Christ. But on the other hand, we ask that those of us who have who are here who have placed faith in the wrong thing, come to Jesus for the wrong reason, and are not truly saved, that you would open their eyes to that so that they may be shaken from the false sense of security and come into genuine faith and trust in Christ, that they might be saved and yield to him the obedience, that he might be glorified through the response of your people, and he might be glorified by receiving the reward for his suffering. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.